Good evening, church. My name's Kristen, and I'm glad to be able to read God's word with you tonight. We're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 to 35. I'll just give you a moment to find it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So we are in our last uh, sermon series. Uh, today, it's only been three weeks, uh, but it feels longer for me. Um, it's been playing in my head, um, sexuality, singleness, and, and marriage. Uh, but before I begin, uh, let me just say that in general, I, I have received uh, pretty good feedback. Uh, a lot of people have kind of said how it has challenged them and helped them uh, see things in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, and, and let me also say that it has been challenging uh, for me. Uh, I remember first week on sexuality, it was challenging because I have to figure out how to navigate such a sensitive and and controversial topic. Uh, last week on singleness, it was challenging because I know very little about, you know, what it feels like to be, to be single, especially your whole life, uh, and then kind of putting the theology of, of singleness in that. It was a huge uh, learning for me. And today's sermon about marriage is it's absolutely challenging for me because it's almost hard for me to say a lot of things in here because it's so convicting uh, that because I know it's actually hard uh, to do. Uh, but next week, we will start a new series on the book of Colossians, as we said, and we're looking at uh, how the gospel really captivates us uh, or, or how it's, it's really, it's all-consuming uh, in its power and wisdom and, and motivation that we get to live uh, for God. Um, so that's starting from next week. Uh, but before I begin tonight, uh, allow me to start with a word of prayer again. Father, again, we thank you for availability of your word, uh, but we ask, Lord, that we won't just read it and learn about it, but we will live according to it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's quite interesting that some of the highest uh, rating, highest rating TV shows in Australia is often related to romantic relationships. Uh, we have The Bachelor, the, the Bachelorette, Married at First Sight, uh, and I believe it's Pastor James' favorite, The Farmer Wants a Wife. Um, and if you watch any of these shows, you'll notice that the objective is not just to, to find love, but the aim and often the conclusion of the show is about getting married or, or staying married and, and living happily ever after. 
Uh, and I think Australians love it because we love the uh, we love watching two beautiful people laughing together over candlelit uh, dinner, staring in their staring at each other's eyes, and and then struggling which person to choose this week and who to eliminate the next week. Uh, because deep down we have this unrealistic fairy tale hunger that finding the perfect match is what's gonna fulfill us. We believe that finding true love will, will be, that if we truly deeply love one another, it will be easy, it will be intoxicating, it will be fulfilling our deep emotional needs. And so often, if marriages fail, if it, if it doesn't work out, we believe then, because of that understanding, we believe that it's only because we married the wrong person. So we are obsessed with these reality TV shows because it gives us the hope that there's one ultimate person to really fulfill us. Now, as Christians, often we don't, we don't buy into that. But at the same time, you know, hearing it all the time, it, it, it does still distort our view of, of marriage and sexuality and love and so on. And so we're not very much immune. We do buy into the same ideology that finding the one is necessary part of life. And so today, today I want to show you how countercultural the understanding of the Christian marriage is. Uh, and again, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to give you big practical tips on, on in how to be a good spouse, um, but it's, it's really just a step back of, of what really God intended for, for marriage. And again, we're going to link it with sexuality and even singleness um, in, tonight. So we're going to look at three big things. Uh, we're going to look at the purpose of a Christian marriage. Um, because understanding the purpose should help us understand that what the priority should be, right? And then understanding the priority will really challenge us that we need something, we need a power uh, in our marriage to keep it going, right? So the purpose, the priority, and the power of marriage. Uh, so to begin with, let's kind of put together what we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks, uh, because as I said, they all relate to each other. So firstly, we wrestled with the idea of objective truth, right? We said that as Christians, we believe that there is a God, that he is real. And so if he is real, then he has created everything for a reason and a purpose, which means we cannot create our own meaning and purpose for anything. The things are not left to chance. They're not random. And so we said on the first week, that our sexuality, our gender, our personality even, everything in our lives are created with an objective meaning and purpose. It's, so it means that there is something as right and wrong. It means that there are boundaries in life that God has put in. And so God is the one who defines our sexuality, right? So that's, that's our first uh, premise. Then we argued that our sexuality is actually given by God to know Him better, right? Because the very essence of our existence is to be able to worship God, that we're created to give praise and honor to God. And true worship only comes from our true knowledge of Him. You can't worship something if you don't really know that thing or person <clears throat> or God. So we said our sexuality really points us back to God's great love for us, that we have these strong desires because it communicates God's strong love for us. That's our second premise. Um, and then, not only that, we said that all these strong desires also points us to the future, 
uh, but not just to the future, but that we have this ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment that we can have in God already through His Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as a form of application, remember last week we said that, that this world, that the life we now live in is, is temporary, that there is a greater fulfillment in the future when Jesus returns. And so we talked um, about the now and not yet. I don't know if you remember that the new kingdom is here. It's now. It's here. But it's not yet fully here. All right? So it's, it's now, but not yet. Therefore, we said last week that God wants us to enjoy this world. But at the same time, we can't get too attached because the best is yet to come when he returns. So whether we're seeking security in our life through money or the desire to have family or the intimacy of marriage or to leave a legacy behind, all that, we can't get to attach what this world is offering because the greater fulfillment is coming when Jesus Christ returns. All right? So not only we should enjoy this world, but more importantly, we should invest in this world to gain greater joy in the future. And so Paul talked about last week that if you're single, you know, feel free to get married if, if you can't help it. But then he says, staying single actually has a lot of advantages, which is you can really devote more of your life, your time to God, to God's people and God's mission. All right. So that's, that's the framework. I think if you, if you put it on, on the next slide, Angela, uh, they'll be able to see it. So, so that's, those are the three premise. And really, if you look at that, you can really apply that to every area of your Christian life. You can apply that to your job, how you look for a job. Uh, you can apply that generosity in looking for a church and how you get involved in a church. That's, you know, that's the Christian frame, framework. So now let's apply that to a Christian marriage, right? So in the same way, Christian marriages has to be primarily God's gift to us in order to know him better, that would lead us to a better worship of him. That I want to argue that marriage really points us towards the relationship that we have with God. Now, let me show you some similarities between Christian marriages and God's love. I'll just give you four, but there's, there's a lot more. Firstly, we know that God's love is intimate, right? One thing that really sets marriages apart from all other types of relationship, is the level of intimacy that you have. Uh, intimacy is about being fully known by someone, that the person really knows who you are, and yet you're fully accepted and loved for who you are. That's what intimacy is. It's about being honest and vulnerable to someone. And so that's why in marriage, you're, you're, you're completely naked or exposed and, it's, and I'm not just talking about physically, that you, are, that you are intimate, that you're exposed, and you know each other emotionally, mentally, spiritually, financially, that you have access to each other's account, there should be, uh, physically, that every part of your life is exposed to the other person, and yet you feel safe, right? And so the intimacy in marriage is but a reflection of the profound intimacy and connection that we were created for with God. But here's the problem. The problem is the more you get to know the person well, right? The more you get to know the person, the more you get intimate with a person, the more you'll see what's wrong with them. And the more you'll see their problems, their baggages, all the flaws that, flaws that they have in their life. And the more you will get annoyed with that person 
which means the more you'll need to forgive, the more you need to sacrifice, and vice versa, by the way, because you'll be just as annoying. And so the more the other person will see the real you, and the more it's harder, the more it's harder to love you. Which leads us to another aspect of God's love, that God's love is sacrificial. And I think most married couples here will confirm that marriage is very, very hard. Um, why is it so hard when two people who are absolutely in love with one, with one another, why, why can it be so hard? Well, it's because you really you're putting two sinners together, demanding that what they want and what they deserve should really come first. And you put those two people together and just give them time, uh, sooner or later they'll drive each other crazy. <laughs> and so Christian marriages is fueled not by romantic love, but by sacrificial love. That sooner or later, you, you, the, the person that you married, you'll see that they're not as cute and funny and beautiful as they were when you were dating. Because when you're dating, you're, you're putting the best you. You're, you're putting your, your best person. But the more you get to know each other, the more they will see your flaws. And so there has to be commitment. There has to be sacrifice and a lot of selflessness. And so again, marriage really just reflects the bigger commitment and sacrifice and selflessness that God gives us and shows us. That, remember, God fully knows us. He knows your ambitions. He knows the, the real motivations in your life. He can see your thoughts. He knows what you do in secret, in the dark. And yet, He is fully committed to you. See, our love for our spouse, it often goes up, up and down. It has highs and lows. And often it depends. Our love for them often depends on their love for us. But we know in the Bible that God's love is never ending. We know it says that they are new every morning. And it doesn't depend on our performance. It doesn't depend on our obedience. Or it doesn't depend on our love for Him. His love is steadfast. His love is simply there because He simply loves us. Um, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, um, said this in, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And he puts it really beautifully. He says... When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. Because to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. And to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, from pretending. It humbles us out of self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw us. See, he, he, he's saying that real love, God's love, gives you freedom and yet it gives you security. That you don't have to pretend in a relationship with him which leads us to another essential aspect of marriage and also God's love, that God's love is covenantal. That marriage is initiated in a wedding. And a wedding, by the way, is not two people declaring how they feel uh, to each other, uh, how they feel for each other on the day. What they're doing is they're making a promise of love to remain committed for the future, whatever circumstances goes to them. And that's why we say vows like for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, for poorer 
or, or richer because it's a promise that whatever is before us, we will be committed. And so in a similar vein, but put that in a much more grander scale, God's love for us is anchored in his unwavering commitment to keep his promise. And that's why we hang on to the Bible, to the scripture, as our very source of hope, because he, he has given us his word, a promise of his eternal love, of his grace, of his forgiveness and presence in our lives. And that's why we read the Bible, because it's, it's full of promises. And because of that, uh, because God's love is so powerful, it is also fruitful. What I mean is that God's love is not just him expressing his feeling, but it's, it is shown through his actions. First uh, John chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, this is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, the fruit of God's love for us is salvation. And so because of his love, there's an action. He saved us. And he sent his son to die for us. Now, do you see how marriage really is a reflection of God's love and our and his relationship with us? That we again we can we can give a I can give a lot more, but the point is knowing all that, knowing knowing about God, of his love for us, it should lead us to worship. Knowing God's incredible love for you should lead you to, to worshiping him more and singing uh, to him, especially on a Sunday. And so marriage is a picture, or it's, it's like an illustration of God's love for us. And this is why in Ephesians 5, Paul relates the relationship between a husband and a wife to the relationship between Christ and the church. He said this uh, in verses 31 to 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, he goes, then he goes, well, this is weird. This is a confusing. This is a profound mystery. But then he goes, I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, the purpose of marriage is not so much different to the purpose of a church. And that is to, be, to bring praise to God, to knowing him and enjoying him more and making him known throughout the world. Right? So now, if that is the purpose of marriage, then we can start to see what we should be prioritizing in marriage. Our second point. Now, the priority in marriage is really twofold. Uh, they're inseparable, but I'll, let's look at them individually. Firstly, the priority in marriage is to help your spouse know the Lord Jesus more and more and help them to be more like him. Right? So again, if the purpose of marriage is to reveal the love of God, therefore, the most important person that you need to reveal the love of God to is your spouse. That the priority in marriage is the sanctification of your spouse. That in a Christian marriage, your goal is not to make your spouse happy, it's to make him or her holy. All right? Marriage has this sanctifying purpose. Again, Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. There it is. We know from ancient cultures, the primary goal of a marriage is to bring social stability, right? You, you join two families together because it strengthened the, the tribal relationship. And so it, it helps you secure your future. In modern culture, we said that the goal of 
marriage is really uh, romantic and emotional happiness for yourself. But here Paul is saying, no, no, the goal is to bring praise to God, to make the church known, but you do it by sanctifying your spouse, to present her to himself. You, you bring back your spouse to, to God in, with radiant beauty and splendor, verse 27, to make her holy and blameless, and to remove all spiritual stains and flaws and, and, and so on. And, and by the way, that's not just for, for husbands. This is the purpose of, of every couple and every Christian, right? Again, it's the same purpose of a church. The church is here because it, it needs to be helping other Christians to become more holy and more righteous. But see, in a marriage, the family is really an archetype or it's, it's, it's a mini church that what we do here in a local church should be happening in a lot deeper and more powerful way in a marriage and in a family. Now, how? how? How do we do that in a marriage? Because of everything else that we mentioned in the first point, because of intimacy and vulnerability and commitment as a Christian couple for each other. Now, let me just show you one aspect, right? Most people in the church would know you from what you display here on a Sunday or what, or what you are like during a Bible study group, right? But your spouse will know you if, you if you are a different person when you drive. Your spouse would know you what you're like at home. Your spouse would know what you spend your money on. And, it's, it's, and again, it's hard to keep secrets in, in marriage. And if you do keep secrets in marriage, you will start to break down because, again, the, one of the main core of marriages is intimacy. And so marriage is a relationship of honesty and vulnerability. And so in a Christian marriage, you should be keeping each other accountable in your Christian maturity. You're not just there to, to stick to each other, but you're committed to grow and challenge and encourage one another in faith. And that's why Paul is saying that in a way, you're contributing to the work of the Holy Spirit in their sanctification. And this is why your spouse will be the best person who can bring out the best in you because of that intimacy and commitment and relationship, but also they're the best person to bring out the worst in you, right? In marriage, you have the best per person to support you and encourage you and motivate you, but at the same time, you have the best person to point out what is wrong with you, right? So, see, often you never realize how selfish and arrogant and self-centered you are until you get married. Now, I know you'll probably hear that from your parents, but you don't believe them. But then you get married, you hear it from your spouse. And marriage really brings out your sins. Not because of your spouse, but it brings out the real you. That's your spouse will test your patience, your forgiveness, your love, and so on. And they will be pointing out your problems all the time. And so imagine if you have two people who are constantly putting the needs of one another, constantly wanting the other person to grow in maturity, encouraging one another, constantly making the other person reach their full potential to serve God and to love God, then you have the perfect place to grow in faith and in love. At the end of your marriage, you will stand before Christ and he will say, whether you've done a, a poor job, you haven't done anything, or he will say, good and faithful servant for helping sanctify my bride. That in marriage, you will have the potential to be sanctified and be made righteous and glorious. But 
not only your priority in marriage, the sanctification of, your, of one another, but you also have the priority of every other Christian and the church, which is to make disciples of all nations, to live in obedience and service towards God. Now, to put it another way, sanctification happens the more you focus on mission together. Uh, again, going back to even like the sermon last week on singleness, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, Paul said this, that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who use the things of this world as if they're not engrossing them. For this world in its present form is passing away. He said, live as if you're not married, as if you don't own anything. Because the imminent truth is that this world is going to end. That everything in this life is going to end, including your marriage. And so Paul's goes, Paul continues to say, uh, I would like you to be free from concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affair how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Again, as we said last week, Paul is not being anti-marriage here, but in fact, he's arguing that your Christian life, <clears throat> excuse me, your Christian life should be a pure devotion and focus on what is about to come, on what is eternal. It should be focused on God, it should be focused on God's kingdom and God's mission, because your life is short, the time is short. And so Paul says, if marriage is going to take that focus away, maybe it's better not to get married at all. He's basically arguing if someone is going to hinder you from your relationship with God or even your mission or your calling to serve him, then perhaps you shouldn't marry that person or maybe you shouldn't marry at all. That's the argument because the time is short. Why waste your life worrying about another person when you can do so much more for God? Right? I'm not saying that. That's Paul's argument. That if you're single, Paul says, that you, have actually, you actually have the advantage of keeping a better focus on God. Now, later on, Paul, verse, verse 35, he says that, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So he's saying that's the main goal and aim of every Christian, whether you're single or you're married and so on. So then... I believe the application, if you're married, then you both should be focused on God, that you should prioritize disciple-making as a couple, that marriage shouldn't hinder you from doing that. Instead, you should find ways to strengthen your capacity to love God and to serve God better, that together you can find ways to be more effective, more efficient, and have a more fruitful ministry of what it takes to make disciples. And that's why in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, now Paul is not talking about marriage here. He's, he's talking to the church. But he might, as well, he might as well refer this to, apply this to marriages. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, uh, see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, that you're united with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Now look at that. The priority of a church is mission, which should be the priority of Christian marriages and family. But see, can you see that the priority is not unity? It's saying that unity comes when people have the same goal. What creates the bond in a Christian marriage or even in a church is not attraction towards one another, but a commitment 
to the mission. And so most books on marriages will tell you how to have a good relationship, how to communicate well. But I think Paul is arguing here, if you put the mission first, if you focus on mission, you will have unity as a result. Keep your eyes on God and you will have one spirit and one mind and therefore have a great relationship along the way as you're doing that together. That great Christian marriages is not a result of people, um, uh, great Christian marriages is a result of, of couples having the dedication and commitment and perseverance in serving God. And just like any team sport, that if one person has a different goal, it will throw off everything else. And again, this is why Paul is saying that maybe it's better not to marry. But it is good to be married as a Christian if together you can be more productive in serving God. That seeking His kingdom must be our first prior priority. And if we're not careful, marriage itself can be a hindrance. That marriage itself can be an idol to, to our ultimate uh, purpose and calling, uh, keeping us away from God. All right, so the priority in marriage is sanctification of the other person. At the same time, serving together to bring more people to Christ, to bear fruit uh, in your marriage. Uh, so as you can see, that's why I say that it's, it's a challenging message to hear, that marriage in itself is already hard as it is, but you bring in the Christian element that you're supposed to be helping sanctify one another and committing yourself to, 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 to be in service for God. How much more difficult is that? And that's why we need the third point, our power in marriage. I want, you to see, I want you to see one of the most difficult and one of the most controversial verses in the Bible about sexuality and marriages, really. Uh, Ephesians 5, uh, let me read again. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave, gave himself up for her. See, often we have a problem with wives submitting to your husbands. Why? Because that sounds so, uh, so demanding. It sounds like slavery, no freedom. And in today's understanding, we value our freedom to do whatever we want. But don't forget the command to the husbands. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And husbands, if you don't get what exactly Paul is pointing out, he says that he was willing to die for her. Because the key to being able to submit to someone else is if you know that that person will do whatever it takes to make you more glorious. That it's easy to submit to, some, to someone if you know that person has your best interest at heart. And this is why marriage is so hard because it requires a lot of trust that you're willing to submit and trust this person and commitment. Because, again, it's, it's about two sinners trying to prioritize themselves over the other. And this is why Paul gave us this command. He, he also gave us the power to do this, that the key to loving your spouse is verse 32. It's to understand that it's not just about your relationship, but your relationship is nothing but a profound mystery that you are already one flesh with Christ that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, that you have the Holy Spirit to empower you. And the more you realize that the power and love that is already in you, the more you will understand that you are already loved, that you are already accepted, you are, you are already desired by God. And so it is a lot easier not to demand that, the same ac acceptance and love from someone else, including your spouse. That instead, it's a lot easier 
to give it knowing that you already have it. And again, it's the same power in singleness. That if you understand that the love of God as a single person is already there, then it gives you the strength to remain single and to love God and serve Him wholeheartedly. So as a Christian, it's really impossible to love and serve your spouse the way Christ loves the church. Unless, unless you already have the love of Christ in you. That's the very strength of your marriage that, that you really need to focus on. Godliness is really the first step, in a way, to a great Christian marriage. Not, not communication skills, not date night, not marriage retreat. They're, they all help, but your holiness, keeping your eyes on Jesus, will be the very first step. See, as I said, the aim of this series is not to uh, get practical tips on relationship and, and how to manage singleness, but it is really to question our relationship with God. Because if we get that right, then I believe everything else will start to align itself. Question your relationship with God. Am I right with God? Am I putting Him first in my life? Do I seek His glory? Do I seek His love? Do I enjoy His presence? Because the more we're connected with God, the more we're able to produce fruit of godliness, and the more we'll have the power to have a thriving relationship, whether we're single or we're married. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, thank you for, uh, for your word. Uh, though it brings conviction and, and often guilt, we thank you that we also have the solution that you have removed all guilt, all shame in our lives. That though you know us from the inside out, like, Lord, you desire and you love us that you're willing to send your only son for our sake. And so, Lord, we thank you for this incredible love that you have for us. But help us to understand that deeply and help us to live that out, that we already we already have everything that we need because you have given us everything um, through your son. So Lord, help us uh, in the week ahead, but also help us in, in our marriages, in our singleness, and in any other relationship that we have. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.